0: hello and welcome to the middle of culture i am one of your hosts eden and i'm your other host peter and this is episode i don't know what number it is so <laughs> starting off real strong <laughs> i want to say it's 15 i want to say it's somewhere check right now it's it's mid tween it's mid-teens i was gonna guess 14 or 15 um yeah but here it's we 15.
1: are 15 x-men Fifth, oh, last stand was 14 that glorious 15 movie
0: 15, we can almost get our driver's license.
1: <laughs> hey, in Idaho, you'd already
0: have it. Well, there you go. I mean, in Iowa, you would too, yeah. only to drive your, only to drive on your farm. You can't have other people in the vehicle with you, but you can get your driver's license to drive around your farm at like 13. It's absurd.
1: That is funny. I think at 14 and a half in Idaho is when you can get your learner's permit and then at 15 or something like that, you can have your driver's license, but it is still sort of a, uh, a you know, not a full driver's license. There's still a lot of restrictions on everything and sure. when you can be driving and who can be in the car with you and all that kind of stuff. And then that gradually loosens up over time. I don't know. I didn't get my driver's license in Idaho. And I should remember because I have had three children get their driver's licenses in Idaho. But I don't remember. It happens. Um, No judgment
0: for me. I mean, there's
1: way more important things for me to be thinking about since I I don't have anyone getting one for another couple years.
0: And then once he does, you never have to think about it again ever.
1: That is for sure. Nice.
0: So uh, this week, um, we're going to be talking about uh, a topic that, that I think will be really fun. But before we do that... Uh, Peter and I were were chatting before we started the call that we wanted to have our Marvel check-in because apparently that's a thing that has happened to us is that we are slowly but surely becoming a Marvel-centric podcast. But I don't (laughs) think that's permanent, and I don't think it'll stay that way. But we're both Marvel fans. We both like Marvel comics. Those are the superhero comics we both are the most interested in. And let's be real, the MCU is the dominant cultural force in American pop culture uh, and has been for almost a decade at this point. So it's everywhere. It's omnipresent. It we true. can't escape.
1: It. And you know, it's kind of funny. You think back to early on in the course of the MCU and we would have, you know, a movie here and there. And if there were two a year, it was like, Whoa, that's a big deal. And Good grief. I mean, we've become we we talk about Marvel as much as we do these days because it is difficult to get away from it. I mean, we've had It's a glut a couple movies, we've had multiple series, and and so it seems like there's almost always something Marvel to be talking about. And I'm sure that Disney loves
0: that fact. Oh, the SEO is off the charts. They're they're loving it. Um but I mean think about just this year. It's twenty twenty two. It's almost August, so we're a little over halfway through the year. We had the back half of Hawkeye. We had Moon Knight. We had Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. We had Ms. Marvel. And we had, uh, just recently, Thor Love and Thunder. We still have upcoming next month She-Hulk starts. We've got Wakanda Forever coming this fall. We've got The Groot Show coming this fall.
1: I think that's I'll actually tell
0: you, starting before Miss Marvel. I mean, before She Hulk. Is it? Well, I I'll tell you so. which one I'm not going to watch, and that's anything dealing with the Guardians of the Galaxy. So I'm free <laughs> from that. I'm so free that from that.
1: You're not. You're not going to be watching the holiday special as well.
0: No, no. <laughs> I mean, I will read reviews, and if the reviews are like this is indispensable, maybe, but probably not. <laughs> yeah. I just don't. I'm not. A, I'm not a James Gunn fan. It's fine if you are. I'm not. It's fine.
1: You know, I don't know James Gunn really that much outside of the two guardians films. I never did see the suicide squad. I did not see peacemaker because I'm just, I am so struggling with getting interested in things that DC is and Warner are putting out. And I don't know anything about James Gunn's previous work because I just haven't ever seen it that I can think of. So, you know, I liked the first Guardians movie. I didn't really like the second one. I think we mentioned that and kind of talked about those when we were doing our mm-hmm. uh, our bracket. So, you know, I guess I'm curious to see what happens to it next. But honestly, one of my favorite things about Thor Love and Thunder, without getting into any spoilers, was the fact that the Guardians weren't in it for very long. I was worried hey, we were going man. to have to put up with them. For at least the first third of the movie, and I was so happy that it was far, far less than that.
0: Oh yeah, I mean they were gone by like minute ten. It was great. Yep. It, it was, was cameo. That's it was perfect. Um, but anyway, so uh, quick thoughts on Thor: Love and Thunder. Again, not spoilers because it just came out. But qu- first impressions. What did you think?
1: Well, I, I think I described it to you thusly when uh, we were texting about it. And I kind of said where I felt that Ragnarok was an MCU movie directed by Taika Waititi. This felt like a Taika Waititi movie that happened to be in the MCU. And I guess what I mean with that is it really in seeing love and thunder and knowing that he wrote, he was one of the principal writers on love and thunder and everything. I kind of look at Ragnarok and go, I think I liked it a lot better because he was a little bit more restrained because he wasn't completely set free on it. Yeah. Um, I think that love and thunder is a fun movie. It's funny. Uh, I laughed quite a bit. I laughed too much. I felt because I felt like the excess of humor took away some of the emotional moments that they were going for. And with the story that they're telling, there really should have been some strong emotional moments. And I think that they tried for them and sometimes it sort of succeeded but not as much as I would have liked because I felt like there was a little too much focus on the ridiculous and the -the over-the-top humor side of things. For sure.
0: Uh, I feel similarly um, while I think being even colder on the film, uh, it it really didn't work for me. I left the theater going, well, that was a movie that I saw (laughs) and spent money to see uh thankfully i went to a matinee showing so i didn't spend too much money on it but (laughs) it was enough that i was like well shucks uh but yeah i just also i think that i guess i'm just not as big of a taika waititi fan as i thought i was because when i think about the movies of his that i really like the only one that i can think of that he was really intimately involved with at but just about every level is hunt for the wilder people um you know what we do in the shadows was largely a Jermaine clement project that had ytd directing it but it was jemaine clement who was the primary writer and creative director of the show or of the movie and that i think is impeccable and i am you know i love the tv show as well what we do in the shadows is uh, splendid but i don't know i'm just kind of i i kind of feel like i'm burnt out on the 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 kitsch that is taika ytd if I had, yeah. I, I think that this is not a, I don't think this is a common uh, sentiment, but between it and Dr. Strange, I much prefer Dr. Strange. Interesting. If I was going to watch one, if I was going to watch one right now, I would much rather watch Dr. Strange again than Thor 4 again. Interesting. Yeah,
1: I, I think I'm definitely the other, uh, kind of reverse those two. And most of that is because, I I don't know, I feel like so much of Love and Thunder was just goofy and silly that while it was excessive, it didn't pull me out of the movie because that's kind of what the movie mostly was. And sure. I felt like some of the goofy Sam Raimi stuff that he does, which I, I'm again, the only Sam Raimi stuff I've ever seen is the original Spider-Man trilogy. So I, I'm not a, you know, I, I don't do horror movies, even if they're like comedy. Like I just, I, I, that is not something that interests me. And so, I think those aspects of Dr. Strange would put it a little bit behind Thor love and thunder, but whereas Ragnarok is again, right up there at the very top of my all time favorite Marvel movies. And as we discussed previously, in my opinion, the most rewatchable of all the Marvel movies, you know, both Dr. Strange and Thor love and thunder are pretty much squarely in the mid to lower half of the teens for me. If I were to rank all of the Marvel movies, so I do think, yeah, like you said, I think I liked it a little, I liked it more than you did, but I would have love and thunder ahead of multiverse of madness. And I think, you know, it sounds like you would probably have those two switched in order somewhere in there.
0: Sure. I mean, and I think as we you know alluded to, when we talked about multiverse of madness a little bit, I'm a much bigger fan of horror, especially yes. horror comedy especially sam raimi's horror comedy because like i could watch evil dead literally any second of any day if you said do you want to watch an evil dead movie with me right now i would say hot damn let's pop some popcorn i love those movies um and so i you know it just vibed with me a lot more um but yeah uh i did not care for love and thunder very much and the further away i get from it the less i liked it but that's that's neither here nor there uh another thing to talk about really quick Oh, go ahead. Well,
1: the other thing I was going to say is I think that that is, is one of the things that happens when you start to get so many entries into something, Yep. you know, mm-hmm. it's, it becomes, and again, I, I love the Marvel stuff. I'm a huge MCU fan. It is for me because I don't consume that much movies or TV, that kind of stuff. It is, I guess probably like 85% of the stuff I consume with the exception, honestly, of things that you and I look at, read, watch, whatever for this. And so Mm
0: -hmm.
1: even then I kind of, you know, I came out of love and thunder and I'm like, yeah, I want to see it again, but probably just when it comes out on digital, like I don't feel any reason to go back to the theaters to see it again. So,
0: yeah. And I also feel like, and this is a bigger problem and it, i think it ties into the other things we wanted to talk about uh san diego comic-con just happened they had their big you know hall h presentation which yep. if you've never been to san diego comic-con going to a hall h presentation is a trip uh i don't necessarily recommend it especially those big ones because you got to wait for like five hours just to get a seat but it is pretty cool to be in the room when all that stuff uh is released uh I I It's been a few years since I've been to SDCC, but I should go again. You know what I should do? I What's should that? do for you what I've done for my other friends. I should submit a paper to the Comic Arts Conference that is concurrent with and a part of San Diego Comic-Con, because then I get two free tickets, baby. Oh, uh, yes. Yes, you and should. And then we could I go together. Exactly. Uh, uh, and that you could be my plus one uh, because as long I, did as that. I don't have to
1: cosplay. Yes, I'm down for
0: it. No, no, you don't have to cosplay <laughs> I know, at all. I know, my I first year, to. my first year I went, I presented uh, on one of the chap. Uh, both times I've gone, I've presented on one of the chapters of my dissertation before I had finished it. Uh, and then I took a friend, Darren the first year and my friend Dominique the second year. And it was just a lot of fun to have the chance to uh, see some of those smaller things in Comic-Con because like, a lot of those smaller conferences or smaller presentations, not that many people go to. And they were some of the most fun things that were there in my opinion. And like on the first one that I was with, the panel was me and Trina Robbins. That doesn't mean anything to you, but if you were into comics, it would mean something to you. She is one of the (laughs) most important figures in sixties and seventies, independent comics. She created women's comics, which was a very influential, uh, um, like indie, uh, like comics with an X, uh, publication. She created Vampirella the character. Oh wow! Yeah. Who I, I'm sure you would recognize. Uh, and she's like become this really respected comic scholar. And here I was, this like. Little guy who had not really—I've never i would never published anything. I'd never presented at a conference of that size. I had really only presented at like grad student or smaller language conferences at that point because my background is in Spanish, Um, and so this was my first big conference like that. And the whole panel—the other person who was supposed to be on the panel with us—ended up not being able to come, so it was just me and Trina Robbins. Wow! And that was you know that was amazing. And then I got to meet her, and we got to hang out for a little bit afterwards. And then every i would see her during the next few days because i presented on the first day of four she would like wave and say hey how are you doing and that so like cool yeah so that's the sort of things that you can do when you're uh and also you know you're there presenting and most of the the attendees are the other scholars who are there to present their work but then there's just a lady dressed like the sexy nurses from silent hill and you're just mm-hmm. like Hey, you and the Pyramid Head cosplayers should sit together. What are you doing, Silent Hill cosplayers? You should be walking around the the hall together. But uh, it's very fun. We should go. I should submit, yeah. and maybe we can go next summer. I'll keep that in totally. mind. Totally,
1: I think that's a great idea. I'd be down for it.
0: Uh, but anyway, Hall H, their big presentation, we found out Phase 4 is done, baby. All yep. At the end of this year, Phase 4 is finished. Guess what? Phase 4 did not have a through line.
1: No, it really
0: didn't. And I think that it shows both in public perception of the properties and also in the properties themselves. There was a lot of meandering, a lot of not knowing where to go, I think. And I think part of that was just the glut of it, especially the last 18 months or so. Once Disney Plus came out and they were like, we're going to shove a show in your eyes every two to three months. uh, It just felt like almost too much and none of it felt focused or directed um, so I think it'll be really interesting to see now that they're like declaring phase four is finished. Here is literally the plan of everything in phase five, which was a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to see if they start to develop that through line again. And like, cause you know, the, the threat of Thanos was always there from the end of Avengers one until infinity war when he showed up. Uh, yeah that's true and so and and so i wonder if you know we know that Kang is going to appear we already saw a version of who will become king in loki um and we know he's going to be the primary antagonist of ant-man and the wasp three uh and and clearly the through line because they also announced the two mo- two of the movies in phase six one of which is called avengers the king dynasty which is the worst name for a movie i've ever heard of <laughs> but, i don't
1: know i can think of a few worse
0: I know solo 180 days in Sodom is worse. Uh, Also a worse movie, but that's neither here nor there. Um, Yeah. I don't know. Marvel. What did you think of Ms. Marvel wrapped up?
1: What did you think? So I do want to say something really quick before that. And this is just a thought I've had because I have heard and seen a lot of that reaction about, uh, where's, you know, what's the unifying story of phase four, And that really hasn't bothered me that much, the lack of it. And I guess it's because I look back at phase one and I go, we didn't have a unifying story really in phase one. And I feel like at least the way it has come across to me, phase four has been the phase one of this second chunk. So, you know, if we go back and look at the things that were in phase one, there was a lot less of them because of that glut that you mentioned. But I mean, we're I was just going to
0: say it was five movies.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, and then capped off with the Avengers. So we have a lot more. And I think that that makes the lack of a through line feel more significant than at least to me, it really sure. is. Uh, but I but am I curious also think to see them start to weave it together.
0: I feel like there was a through line in phase one because of the signature post credit sequence. Here is Samuel L. Jackson saying, let me tell you, Tony Stark, about the Avengers initiative. So I think that there was that through line, actually, in phase one that I don't think we've gotten in phase four, even though phase one was building up a lot of brand new characters that you maybe have never seen on the, the big screen before. You know, yeah. there had been a Thor made for TV movie that was a spinoff of The Incredible Hulk, and it was bad. So like people didn't had never seen Thor on the movie screen before. Uh, but they knew that avengers was a thing that was coming down the pipeline because of that post credit scene in the very first movie that's true so that's true i don't know we'll see
1: but back to your question about miss marvel um I-, I thought there were overall i found miss marvel to be delightful i thought Same. that the the villains of the show whether you want it to be the um uh, the the clandestine or you want it to be damage control were by far the weakest part of the whole thing
0: 100%
1: but i loved the character and i loved uh Kamala's interactions with her friends and family and i loved the the way that her story is really steeped in Pakistani culture Uh, All of that stuff completely overshadowed the weakness of the antagonists of the show. And I loved it. And it is, I'm, I'm pretty much sure that it, um, okay, I know this is going to be controversial because I know that there's a whole lot of WandaVision stands out there and I've, you know, that's all right. I forgive you and I hope you'll forgive me. But, (laughs) you know, for me, it is either miss Marvel or Hawkeye as my two favorite Marvel Disney plus things for very, very different reasons, but I think that they're the two strongest. I think that they're the two overall most consistent and they introduce us to new characters who I am so excited to see more of. I want to see more Kamala Khan. I want to see more Kate Bishop so, so much. And so I think that's why those two are my favorite. And, depends on the day and it depends how tired I'm feeling. If I'm feeling real tired dad energy, then Hawkeye is going to be my number one. And if I'm (laughs) feeling a little bit less tired dad energy, then Miss Marvel is going to be my number one, but it was a delight. And I say that as someone who really knew nothing about the character other than playing the first couple hours of that square Enix Avengers game. I knew who she was and I played some of that game and I didn't really like it a lot. So I didn't play more of it. Um, but so i came into it really not knowing anything about her no real preconceptions and i absolutely loved it what about you
0: i agree uh i i found it charming the cast was so good the whole oh, yeah. cast just about oh, yeah. was so so good um and it made me like a lot of the characters who i didn't care for as much from the comics like bruno's always there but bruno i felt has always been kind of the weakest link in kamala's like uh cast in the comics i've never really cared about bruno as a character but i really liked the actor playing bruno and yeah. it made me care a lot more about bruno as a character um nakia was great i expected her to be mm-hmm. great uh you know iman valani is just so much fun to watch because you can tell how much fun she's having yes. um I really liked... Uh, again, I, re- I enjoy these comics a lot. I think that they're really solid superhero comics. They're the kind of thing that, by and large, you can pick up as not being a person who's read a lot of comics and mostly enjoy yourself, even in the ones where it has uncomfortable crossovers. Uh, I still think that G. Willow Wilson did a really good job of keeping it uh, as contained as she could in the strictures of a larger superhero universe. Um, but I also think that the show did a lot of things well that I was worried I don't know how you do that on the big screen because, spoiler alert, uh, the big bad of the first arc of the comic, Ms. Marvel, is a clone of Thomas Jefferson in a bird body, like a large human-sized chicken (laughs) person body.
1: Oh my gosh, now I have to read this.
0: You should. It's really good. And Adrian Adrian Alfona is the artist for the first arc or two, and he's one of the greatest artists to work in comics. So the art is just incredible. It pops off the page. Um But yeah, it's I, I thought to myself, I sure hope that they don't have that villain on the big screen. And they didn't, <laughs> and that was it was better for it. Yeah. Um but they uh, did I, tie I in agree. a lot of they did still tie in a lot of really great stuff. I thought that the, the changes that it made to the way that Kamala dealt with her parents was also really good while still keeping it in that kind of structure of them being immigrant parents, them being a little more, uh, you know, concerned about her safety, a little more conservative in what they want her to be able to do with her friends and things like that. They were still able to capture that, um, but making you feel really warmly for the parents and understanding where they're coming from. Yeah. Uh, I, I I just thought it was really good. I really enjoyed myself.
1: Yep. I did too. So.
0: And then one last Marvel thing before we get on after half the podcast is Marvel talk. Uh, the Black Panther Wakanda forever trailer also came out of Hall H. Uh, what are your first impressions on viewing that trailer, Peter?
1: So confession, and I, I already confessed this to you and I meant to rectify this prior to recording And time got away from me. I (laughs) have only seen it on my phone on Instagram through Marvel's official page and Instagram being the glorious, wonderful meta corporation app that it is, a.k.a. steaming pile of doggy doo-doo. Even though I made the trailer go full screen, it still would not allow me to rotate my phone into landscape. So I watched a 16 by nine uh, or even perhaps a, a more of a whatever the film res, you know aspect ratio is 21 something. I, mm-hmm. I watch that in the middle of my phone uh, with my phone in portrait orientation.
0: So, so like a, my opinions approximately are limited. an inch by three inches.
1: Correct. Correct. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's the caveat before I say that I don't really know what to think about it. I am excited. Uh, in part, I really am curious what they're going to do, obviously with, uh, the tragic passing of Chadwick Boseman. I thought that, and right now the second, like her name was literally on my tongue. And then when I went to say it, it was gone. The actor who plays his mother, uh, Angela Bassett, Angela Bassett. Thank you. I thought that the the little bit of the speech that we got, I don't know where it's going to be given. I thought that was incredibly powerful. The way her voice kind of breaks as she's talking about how she's lost her whole, she's a queen uh, of the most powerful country on, you know, on earth and she's lost everything. And uh, so I I think that we're going to see some interesting things. Uh, I'm very fascinated to see Namor. I think Namor is one of those characters that, people don't realize how long he has been around in marvel you know
0: uh for sure
1: um
0: i mean people don't realize that he's one of the original like uh before marvel existed as a company you know in the 40s he was he was punching nazis with captain america and the human torch and bucky in the 1940s
1: yeah And, you know, and I'm sure that many people know this already, but for those who don't, he predates Aquaman. And so he is not a ripoff of Aquaman. Uh, Aquaman's a ripoff of him. That is correct. Um, I love the fact that, and again, this has always been one of the things I have appreciated about the MCU, is their willingness to... Stick to the comics when they feel that it fits the story they want to tell, but stray from it when they feel that that also fits the story they want to tell. And so I'm super excited to see how does Atlantis being more of what appears to be like an Aztec type origin play into this as opposed to, uh, you know, what people generally think of of Atlantis. So I'm, I'm excited.
0: Uh, I think they're going more Mayan than Aztec, but that is not important to you. Uh, just because of the glyphs, I looked at the glyphs and I was like, "Oh, those are Mayan glyphs. Those aren't Aztec glyphs." <laughs> I couldn't. But see the headdress does. On the, phone. the headdress does look more Aztec. It's probably going to be a mess. Anyone who is like a pre-Columbian scholar is probably going to walk out of that being like, "Those assholes did a real number." <laughs> on actual peoples but i too am excited as a person who does study pre-columbian uh latin america i'm still pretty excited and i love that they cast you know a mexican man of indigenous descent to be namor who looks like he is also like an indigenous american you know yeah also i you know i texted this to you good good lord tenoch huerta is so hot in that Uh trailer? He looks (laughs) so hot. People gonna be thirsting like they were for Umbaku the first the Umbaku the first time. Cause like I was on Twitter, I know everyone was going to do Black Panther and they were like, This movie's so great. Killmonger would be hotter if he wasn't covered with all those scars. The real thirst was all for Umbaku. It was all for him. So I think we're gonna get similar thirst for Tenochtitless. Uh, as namor i'm excited for it uh i think that they i i i hope they pull it off i hope it's a good movie i was not excited to see martin freeman there again because screw the cia uh and lastly the last thing i'll say before we move on i love that two of the widest dudes in comic books the two fishmen, are now played by a dude who is polynesian and a dude who is mexican
1: yeah very true. As beautiful.
0: That's beautiful. Screw bigots. It's awesome. Let's go.
1: So the final thing I want to say is, you know, sure. Screw the CIA. I'm okay with that. But I actually really, really like Martin Freeman as an actor. So I, I am looking All forward forgiven. to seeing him again. Um, here's my question for you before we move on. Okay. Who do you think don's the black Panther suit? Who is going to be the next black Panther?
0: i was talking with cassie about this beforehand because we see at the very end of the trailer a shot of someone in a black panther suit from behind just the lower part um i think that your two biggest contenders are nakia and shuri and my gut says it'll be shuri but my heart says it should be nakia
1: interesting what do you think I don't know because I was leaning towards the same two, both Shuri and Nakia, and again was leaning towards Shuri, and perhaps only because I know that Shuri has worn has donned the mantle of Black Panther at times, or at a time at least in the past. She uh, has. I I wonder, and and I don't want to, you know, it's not something I want to get deep into because I don't know all the details, but I know that there was some controversy with uh, Letitia Wright and some anti-vax comments and things like that. And so I I don't know if there's going to be any hesitation to use her and and put her in that role going forward. Uh, I've heard some speculation that there may be, which has got a number of people leaning toward Nakia. I don't know. I think we're just going to have to see. Uh, I really, really don't know where they're going to go with it. And that actually is one of the things that I find exciting.
0: Actually, you know who it should be? Angela Bassett. She would be awesome. Let's put the queen. Let's put the queen in the suit. Yep. But, uh, you know, we'll great. see. It, November, November. We'll find out. So, now on to the topic at hand. 30 minutes in. <laughs> Our Marvel <laughs> Minute right. turned into Marvel 30 minutes, but I think that's okay. I think we we Because so we have, uh, we have a, a looser topic for today. We did not, either of us, we didn't pick a specific piece of media for both of us to uh, go over before doing this because, you know, we were both getting, re- you you were traveling. I was getting ready to travel. Um, it's been busy with summer and all sorts of things. So I was like, let's have kind of a breather while we still get to record and chat with one another and talk about something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Um, and that is, I want to talk about post-apocalyptic media and post-apocalyptic cultural production, but I kind of wanted to use the Fallout games as kind of a lens for us to talk a little bit about post-apocalyptic media. What do we think of that genre? What do we, what do we think is generative or exciting about it? And what do we think is some of the, are some of the pitfalls of post-apocalyptic genre Uh, and maybe some of our favorite examples of it, both in video games. Obviously we're going to start talking about video games, but also in books, you know, movies, whatever else we wanted to talk about. So, you know, we, I think we mentioned this a little bit, but I would like to get it on the recording and talk a little bit more about it. What's your relationship with the Fallout games, the Fallout series of games? What have you played? What have you avoided? And kind of what do you, what do you read on, on the series as a whole? So I
1: have played to completion the original Fallout. I have played a fair bit of Fallout 2, though it was many years ago. I dabbled around with Fallout Tactics, which was sort of a little bastardized side project that I don't think was made by anybody who was involved in the first two Fallout games. And then I have started up on a number of occasions, Fallout 3, and I fell into sort of the same trap that I would fall into every time I would think about starting up Skyrim. And that is that you start thinking about those games and then you start going, well, maybe I should add a mod. And then figuring out how you're going to mod the game turns into a much bigger part of uh, your life than actually playing the game. (laughs) And then I get burned out and frustrated at the mods. And so then I stop. And Fallout 4, I own just like all of them and I have never even started it up. Fallout New Vegas, same thing, own it. I know that from a story standpoint, I am sure that fallout new Vegas is going to be the best because obsidian makes really good story based RPGs and I like what they do often. Yeah. I just haven't gotten into it. And so, um, it's one of those series that I actually, it's on the docket for me to get into fallout three. It's kind of once I finally wrap up what I'm doing in Skyrim, I think there's a decent chance that fallout three may be the next thing I try and tackle. I just haven't done it yet.
0: Here's what I'll say. Just play it vanilla. Don't worry about mods. Just play it vanilla.
1: I don't know if I can,
0: especially, especially for your first time. Maybe, maybe a graphics overhaul because this is a game from 2008 or whenever the hell, but like,
1: yeah, I
0: gotta make it look a little bit better.
1: Cause it looks rough
0: i mean yeah it's a little rough uh but also i find some some comfort and some uh some joy in that roughness uh yeah so i also i i have played not to completion but i have played every game in the fallout series with one exception which is the uh xbox uh, original Xbox book fa- or game Fallout Brotherhood of Steel I never played it.
1: Oh yeah I forgot that one existed.
0: That's because no one's ever played it
1: <laughs> and also
0: you play as a member of the Brotherhood of Steel and do you know who's the worst? Sorry fans of the Brotherhood of Steel. The Brotherhood of Steel is the worst. I hate those guys <laughs> Sorry Fallout 3 for trying to make me like the Brotherhood of Steel just because you made them an offshoot and put a non-monster in charge of it. It's still the Brotherhood of Steel and they still suck uh, but anyway. <laughs> so I've played all very of them. Good. Uh it's been a while. I I am not very I I dislike the combat in Fallouts one and two. I really dislike the way that turn-based combat works in those games. And I'm a kind of person who I, I can get into a tactics game. I played a shit ton of Battletech earlier this year, and I loved it because that game rules. Uh, but, you know, I I can't I can't make the the turn based combat in the two original Fallout games of Fallout Tactics really jive with my brain, even though I've played them quite a bit. Um, I usually have ended up cheating at least part of the way through, I've been like, mm, "Time to go into the editor, give myself nine hundred and ninety nine points in Vats." Sorry, everything you're done. <laughs> uh, but you know, I I do like I like I clearly I like these games. I've played Fallout Three. To completion at least three or four times fallout 3 is the reason i own an xbox 360 i went to visit my this was when i was dating my now wife i went to visit her over a thanksgiving break uh when she went to visit her family and i went to go meet her whole family and i was sleeping in the basement on a blow-up mattress of her parents house and down there they had a big tv and had an xbox hooked up to it and so when I couldn't sleep because I was nervous about being at this girl who I wanted to marry's house, I booted up Fallout 3 and started playing it on her little brother's Xbox 360 with his blessing. And I really became enamored with it. So I knew that I wanted to get a, a an Xbox so that I could play Fallout 3. So that was why I bought an Xbox 360 for the first time. And so I've played it a lot. And I've played New Vegas quite a few times. I really think New Vegas is... Uh, easily the best in the series uh while you know all of these games have huge caveats that come with me liking them um but i also think that i like fallout 4 more than i think a lot of people did um for a lot of reasons uh and i have recently been spending I, it's been a while since i booted it up but when i got my xbox series x i have game pass guess what's on game pass literally every fallout game so i decided to play 76 because I had heard that when it launched it was extremely bad, but that it had kind of recuperated itself over over the years as they built a more traditional Fallout-feeling experience into it. Um, so I have actually spent, you know, 25, 30 hours in Fallout 76. Nice. Um, and it's a mess of a game. I can see why people didn't like it. But there's a lot of things that I think fit really well for when it's taking place in terms of the timeline. Uh, that make it, that that I can kind of recommend it, especially since it's on Game Pass, just download and play it. And if you don't like it, just delete it. Whatever, who cares? Yep. Uh, the beauty of Game Pass. Um, but so we've obviously both played a lot of, or uh, a fair amount of these games. You know, the world of Fallout is such that in 2077, World War III ha- culminates in nuclear apocalypse. Everyone's wiped out few people survive outside of the vaults that are built by this dystopian company vault tech but most of the people who are able to survive are in these big underground vaults that then open up um, and then they build society out from there and so i think that there's a lot of things i really like about them in terms of the way that they show how society rebuilds itself but i also see a lot of problems in the ways that it sees how society rebuilds itself. So again, you've played one and two. What did you, what were the kind of vibe that you got from those? Like what, what did you think about the world as presented in this, in the early entries in the series? It's
1: an interesting world and there's a definite, there's a definite aesthetic they're going for and a definite feeling of you know you're kind of a fish out of water because you're at least in the first one you know you're you're one of these vault dwellers and you're heading out to try and and figure out how to save the rest of the vault and you find all these you know smaller versus some bigger kind of towns little societies that have built up and i don't know i remember it feeling kind of like it was almost sort of a wild west Type situation you know each town kind of felt like it was it almost felt with that there were times when you were playing like a a wild west sort of cowboy game because Mm -hmm. of the way the world was put together with little bits of technology thrown in here and there but obviously that you know things are like you said it's kind of post-apocalyptic and so there's not nearly as much uh, technology and and again everything's kind of been pushed back time-wise uh, quite a bit and you know that that was i think kind of the biggest thing that stuck out is is this sort of interesting cross between almost like a feeling of the wild west with the sci-fi elements and the sci-fi tropes that it brought with it
0: yeah and i also think that there's a there's a big current of retrofuturism that runs through it Um, because you know a lot of the tech that you see in that series is like retro futurist like 1950s-esque tech even though it is you know in 27 in the 2070s when the the bombs drop you know the cars all look like 50s cars Um, you know the fashion is 50s fashion and I do think that that a lot of that here's an interesting thing a lot of what I think that we perceive as that retro futurism as wedded so tightly with the fallout series is because of the bethesda games okay because like you know part of i still think the best part of both fallout and fallout 2 are the opening cinematics yeah both of them just are incredible when you see them for the first time you know uh but they have this like this retro futurist you know the very first one there's this TV that's on, and it's showing, like, you know, commercials for cars that cost $300 million. Uh, you know, here's a robot that you can get to be your home butler, the Mr. Handy. Oh, look, it's our it's our boys in uniform up annexing Canada. And you watch them, like, cap a dude in the back of the head, who's just, like, tied up. And then they, like, turn and wave at the camera. Yay, America. Uh, so there's like a real current undercurrent of like satire for like American exceptionalism and American, uh, uh, like nostalgia. Yes. But then you don't really see that nostalgia anymore in the rest of fallout. Like you see the wasteland, you see the bones of the society that existed before but it's really that that level of satire is really only found in that opening cinematic and the same is true of fallout 2 where you know there's a family who's leaving the vault for the very first time and they're watching this like training video about what'll happen when they leave the vault and then the door opens and there's some soldiers there that just gun them down just like perforate them but again you don't see it other than that but then fallout 3 comes along And with it comes a change in perspective. We're now in first-person perspective instead of an isometric perspective. Um, And I think that they lean too much into the, like, 50s kitsch and and they make it less satirical because it's too much of like, well, this was pretty cool. Like, for example, both of those opening cinematics for Fallout 1 and 2 feature, like, old 50s ballads. Uh but that is to heighten that that is to heighten the the irony you know and then it's not like you hear those through the rest of the game the rest of the game has a great ambient spooky soundtrack that's great to write a a dissertation to because i wrote a lot of my dissertation listening to the fallout one soundtrack because it's spooky (laughs) and great background and like sound nice but then you get to fallout 3 you've got a pit boy on your wrist and your pit boy has a radio so you can turn on your radio and listen to approximately 48 minutes worth of great hits from the 50s and like again i really like these games i've played them a lot but i don't turn to those radio stations anymore because it's like why would you actually play these songs in 22 72 200 years after the bombs fell society is just starting to like rebuild itself which again that's a whole other question of like why is society only rebuilding itself 200 years after the fact i don't think that's how society works i think that it's a facile understanding of the way that community works but uh also why would you play these old bing crosby songs from the 50s why would you play this racist danny k song about a guy from the jungle who goes to the city and is scared of all the cars like you know
1: you know, and you bring up one of the things that we see in a lot of post-apocalyptic entertainment, and certainly not all of it, but the fallout games are are extremely sort of uh, they really embody this idea. And that is that the progress of society and humanity and technology just seems to like stall after. Mm-hmm whatever the apocalyptic scenario was. Sure. You know, if we think about the progress that has been made from a technological standpoint in the past 200 years, it is mind boggling. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's staggering to think of that progress. And so that's one of the things that kind of rubs me the wrong way is the fact that we have these games taking place in some cases, you know, a few hundred years after the, after this world war three and this nuclear apocalypse and it feels like everything has just been held in stasis that whole 200 yes. years, things have not progressed in a believable or understandable way because again, you look back and say, all right, I'm sure that there was some damage done obviously by this nuclear Holocaust and It did, of course, was going to set things back from a technological standpoint and everything. Yet at the same time, you've got lots of people still alive who have the knowledge necessary to get society back up and running, get technology back and going. And in 200 years, we should be a lot further along than we are. And so that's great. It kind of strains credulity there and makes me go. This should have happened right after the holocaust and then i would believe that this is what the world the state of this world was like
0: and i think i think this is why i feel more warmly towards the latest two entries in the series than i think a lot of other people do who really loved three and new vegas especially a lot of them were turned off by four just because i think four is really part of the thing is four is really big four is easily the biggest of the games um but one of the things about four is that there is an entire faction the institute which is essentially that universe's version of mit and guess what of course those assholes survived and they've been doing (laughs) weird science shit for 200 years like maybe making artificial people who they're now using to infiltrate all of the communities outside of the institute so like that's one of those things where I think that what you the criticism that you just made has really been dealt with. Where they're like, no, there were places where that level of of technology continued and has gone in even more uh, advanced and honestly nefarious ways. Um, interesting. So I think that 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 is one of the things that I think is most interesting about Fallout Four is you know you being a person and the other interesting thing i know a lot of people didn't like this about fallout 4 your protagonist is a pre-war person who was frozen in cryo for 200 years uh-huh because one of the things and this is a thing that came in the later mostly the bethesda and later games is that each of the vault tech vaults had some sort of experiment that they were running so each of them, you know, had a weird thing that they did. So like, and this was made retroactive to the earlier games. Cause the setup of the first game is you need to leave the vault because your water chip has failed. Yep. And you find out that a glut of water chips was sent to a different vault and your vault had one and was built to be defective. In other words, to precipitate the actions of the game. Uh, and so you see later on that those vault tech experience are more and more nefarious and wider and wider ranging. And the one that your character comes from in Fallout 4 was a cryogenic vault. So they lied to you and told you that this was like a sterilization chamber. You climbed into it and then you woke up 200 years later, uh, which I think is an interesting conceit because now yeah, you are not is. a person, it, it, you know, Fallout 3 they make you a person who had grown up in a vault that supposedly had never opened and then you leave it fallout f- new vegas is really interesting in that you're not a person who's ever lived in a vault. you're just like a normal joe who lives in this world that has existed and like you were a, c- a courier who had a normal job in this normal world um but then in fallout 4 the conceit is that you are a person from the pre-war world so when you're coming out and seeing things for the first time you're like well um i, I want to sleep what felt like not an instant ago and the world was not like this um so i think that's an interesting perspective to have and then on the other on the other side of that one of the things that i think works in fallout 76 is that that game specifically explicitly takes place 20 years post the apocalypse so it is the first in terms of chronology it is the very first game because okay. any of the other ones are at least 100 years in the future. But this one, your vault opens 20 years afterwards, and you're supposed to go back out and repopulate Appalachia. So, yeah, everything's a shithole because it's only been 20 years, and most of everyone died. Yours is the one of the first vaults to open. So I think that it builds that. How come everything's a mess? How come society hasn't really rebuilt itself far more believably because it's only been 200 years as opposed to, like, 230?
1: That's That's definitely interesting
0: but so again i think that these games are interesting in the way that they build a world but they also strain a lot of my believability like we talked about one of the things that i mentioned i think when i talked about wanting to do talk about this a little bit is i had been replaying new vegas i really like new vegas again i would recommend Just play it vanilla. It doesn't matter if it looks ugly. Play New Vegas. It's so good. (laughs) Um, it It is probably in my top 10 games of all time just because I really like it. I've spent a lot of time in it um i really think that the world they build and again this is a world that a lot of it is being rebuilt and you're seeing a lot of development there is an entire the new california republic exists as a functioning society with its own fiat currency that is not the stupid bottle caps that for some reason they're still using 230 years later on the east coast but like you know uh it does a lot to to develop what was done in those first two games because it's back on the west coast well you know nevada but still closer to the west coast rather than the east coast which is where the bethesda games have moved the action to um but yeah uh, i was in, i was playing new vegas replaying it the other day and i get to the town of nipton and nipton is a town that has been rebuilt there's houses everywhere there's a town hall that is functional where they have their government they have working computers in this town hall that the town secretary and the town mayor use And yet, there are still piles of dirt and debris in the hallways. (laughs) And it seems to me, if this was a functioning society and a functioning town that you had built, you would say, okay, everyone roll up your sleeves. We're going to take an afternoon and finally clear all the freaking debris out of our town hall. (laughs) Yeah. But it doesn't fit (laughs) the aesthetic it doesn't fit the aesthetic that was built, which is everything's a shithole, everything's fallen apart. It's been 200 years. You can't be like that anymore. Just like you said, people, will, people would have cleaned it up by now. Yeah. They would have moved They would have moved the burnt-out cars to another place. They wouldn't be sitting in the middle of the street still in a town that's been lived in for over 100 years. They would have moved that stuff.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So I, I think that there's a lot that narratively hooks me about especially the bethesda fallout games but aesthetically there's places where they really fall apart for me yeah but so to kind of wrap up what are some other post-apocalyptic media that you enjoy or that you that you find works for you or other ones that you also feel are like well these are things i like about this but there are some other huge problems i have with XYZ, you know, piece of media. So a lot of it
1: really goes back to, um, to my childhood, to some degree, uh, our father, I don't know if he still would consider himself, but there was a time when I was young that he was a huge fan of the Mad Max movies. And I remember his excitement when Mad Max three was coming out because it had Tina Turner who he was also a huge fan of. And so again, with good are, reason. Oh, absolutely. And so those are very, you know, when I think post-apocalyptic, honestly, one of the first things that my brain is going to go to is, is Mad Max is the road warrior is that sort of uh, that sort of setting, that sort of aesthetic, that sort of vibe. And I have not watched any of those movies in a really long time. And I don't know that I feel the need to watch any of them again at this point in my life. But the idea of post of a post-apocalyptic world is indelibly linked to Mad Max and those, uh, those movies. Another one that I liked a lot growing up. And uh, I would like to think that perhaps I have slightly more sophisticated tastes, although I look at some of the things I enjoy and I go, no, you're full of it. You, you are not. But when I was a kid, I remember loving the, and I know I'm going to say it wrong according to the author and I don't care. I will forever That's say he's Shannara. I will not say the other way and I'm going to leave it at that. But I loved those books as I was young, when I was growing up and I really enjoyed the moment and I don't remember where it was, but I enjoyed the moment where I realized that these were post apocalyptic, that some apocalypse had taken place and had put things back, not just 10, 20, 30 years, but had put things back hundreds and hundreds of years. And so now we have a setting that's, you know, swords and sorcery and that sort of thing. And so that's Mm -hmm. another one of those things that is really linked to, uh, to post-apocalyptic, uh, fiction in my head. And and those would probably almost uh, honestly be two of the, of the biggest, most significant entries. Again, my issues that I have with post-apocalyptic fiction is I always feel like, and we already kind of talked about this, but I feel like humanity and now look, there are a lot of reasons that humanity sucks. Um, but there's also a lot of reasons and there's a lot of good people and there are a lot of people who do good things. And I feel like post-apocalyptic fiction tends to really give short shrift to the people in society who are good, who would be good, who would become leaders, who would try and, and get society back on track. And there's always going to be the dill holes who get in their way and want the power and, and are just the problem because we have plenty of those right now, as we can all see without having to look very far. But I do feel like the idea of society picking itself back up and progressing again is, is always given a little bit of short shrift in a lot of different ways. So mm-hmm. what about yeah, you? What I, are there other things that really resonate with you?
0: I feel the same sort of way that I think that while I do, I have consumed a lot of post-apocalyptic media that it always leaves me a little cold um, for the exact thing that you're talking about. That like, I think that, and if you hear me talk about the way the state of the political state of the world in 2022, you might not believe that I actually feel this way, but ultimately (laughs) I believe that I believe humanity fundamentally people fundamentally are good at their core I am not a person who, uh, you know, I'm not a religious person anymore. And part of that is my divorcing myself from the concept of original sin and thinking that we are all fallen and evil. I don't think that about people. I think that people largely are good. It's just that the way that our society is currently structured, the worst of the worst are the ones who are able to gain power. But that's a conversation for another day. But that's part of why I think there's a disconnect between how I fundamentally believe that people are good and that most people would help people in a situation in... in, And I think that you see this when, like, uh, you know, apocalyptic things happen, when huge natural disasters happen. Are there bad people who do bad things? Yes. But the fact of the matter is, like, a lot of... uh, A lot of people band together and you know part of this comes back to my overall politics of that people are fundamentally good and that society can build itself back through people working together you know i i firmly believe that that is that is what would that is how humanity works and that that is a future that would be better than the trajectory on which we currently find ourselves where we are led by the absolute worst of the worst on on all sides uh but i am with you that i do like a lot of it i like the i like the mad max series i saw fury road like four or five times in the theater because that movie just that movie slaps it is so cool um and I, you know, I like the other ones too. I like the original Mad Max. I know it is one of the least popular, I think, of the series. But I like that one because it shows the breakdown. You know, at yeah. the start of that movie, the apocalypse hadn't happened yet. The apocalypse happens off screen during the course of that film, yep. essentially. Uh, and I think that that is really interesting. Um, yeah, but ultimately, I think that there is. I I like when post-apocalyptic media can be a little more hopeful, or even just apocalyptic media. Uh, I think that we talked about this off uh, off mic, we didn't talk about it on mic, but two of my favorite books of all time are Octavia Butler's uh, Earthseed series. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Parable of the Sower is the first one, and then Parable of the Talents is the second one. And they're uncomfortable to read sometimes, because you can see the parallels in the breakdown to society that we are currently experiencing. You know, I remember I read Parable of the Sower actually when I was at my very first Comic Con in like 2015. 20, I guess it was the summer of 2016 was the very first Comic Con I went to. And I was reading Parable of the Sower, and there is a man running for president in Parable of the Sower whose campaign slogan is Making America Great Again. Oh my God and he's a xenophobic bigot monster and so it was some it was really surreal to be there in san diego taking breaks in between all of these panels i'm going to and all the stuff i'm seeing and reading this book while in the throes of the 2016 presidential election where we have an absolute bigot monster running for president whose slogan is make america great again uh, uh. And, and so I, it, those series, that series makes me uncomfortable, but, and there's a lot of brutality, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of, of people, yeah, of society falling apart, but ultimately that series also has a hopeful bent to it because something that is better starts to be built, you know? Uh, and I think that that is one of the reasons why I love that series so much. And granted, I like just about everything Octavia Butler r- wrote, I didn't care much for Kindred, I didn't care much for Fledgling, but just about everything in between those two I really like. Um, but I still think her two very best works are Parable of the Solar and Parable of the Talents, because they feel so prescient, but also envision a world that can be built that is better than the one that we are in from the ashes of the world that we are currently in, you know? Yeah. So I really... I really like that series. Highly recommended. If anyone has not read the parable books, read the parable books. They're very, very good. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I wish... It's one of those genres that I think is more and more present as the future seems so fraught. But I like when things are a little more hopeful. And I hope yeah. that we see more of that without without devolving don't get me started on hope punk as a pseudo genre because nothing makes me want to puke more but uh <laughs> i cuz there's even a know difference between speak. <laughs> there's a difference between being hopeful and the performative grossness of hope punk but that's neither here nor there i i i like when post apocalyptic futures and something that is post post-apocalyptic can be imagined you know what happens after the fall after the post-apocalyptic rebuild what do we do in this post -post post-apocalyptic scenario yeah you know one of my agree one of my favorite examples of that media is are you familiar with the uh the podcast friends at the table at all no i don't there was a time when I really started to get into actual play podcasts. And then I soured on literally all of them with the exception of friends at the table. Um, which is the only actual play podcast I'll still listen to in 2022. The rest of them. I'm like, wash my hands of you. You're all terrible. Uh, because it's boring to hear other people play D and D like just play it yourself. It's more fun. <laughs> uh, sorry, critical role. You're not very good. Uh, but friends at the table is really good. Um, And I think that part of the thing that I like about them so much is that they're not using very common systems. They use lesser-known but still really robust uh, role-playing systems for their games. Um, But they have a series uh, called Seasons in Hyron that is their first, third, and fifth seasons of the show altogether that are set in this post-post-apocalyptic kind of fantasy world, sort of like Sword of of Shannara, I was going to say shannara because i hate myself uh <laughs>
1: i noticed sort I of noticed. shannara I, almost uh,
0: I was the pedant who after i met terry brooks and he said it said shannara i drilled into my brain even though i hated the way that it sounded that that's how you say it so sometimes it still leaks out of my brain
1: And Uh I remember you telling me that because you went to a book signing with a copy of a book for me because I couldn't make it. And you got the book signed. And then you told me that that's how he said it. And I did the exact opposite is I just sort of expunged that memory from my head as much as possible and said, nope, it is Shannara. It
0: will always be Shannara. You said death of the author. yes. Well, I, it was the right thing to do, because Shannara sounds way better. I bet that's what they said in the TV show. I never watched it, because who has time to watch TV shows? Right. But I bet they said Shannara in the TV show. I sure uh, hope so. Because Shannara is terrible sounding. But anyway, post-post-apocalyptic, their seasons, or their, their show Seasons in Hyron is about this group of adventurers in this post-post-apocalyptic world. And you eventually see another apocalypse happen and then the world that is built out of that apocalypse and it is so much more generative rather than restrictive or or um you know uh, static that's what i'll say cuz you know a lot of post apocalyptic worlds like you said it seems like everything falls apart and then it's just static afterwards yeah But one of the things that I really like about Spring and Hieron, the end of the Hieron series and the way that it resolves itself is that it is a a post-apocalyptic situation that is extremely generative and you see societies rebuild themselves. You see them, you know, make agreements with other societies. You see the way that people would build something again in a situation like that. So I really i really would recommend friends at the table if someone was looking for a podcast to listen to i wouldn't maybe start with ottoman highron because the sound quality is not very good for that very first season i would maybe start with one of the later sci-fi seasons that they do that they did in between the fantasy post post-apocalyptic world but i think that that show specifically grapples with a lot of these questions um but they come to conclusions, I think more in lines with what my ethics and politics would hope for a future than what I see in a lot of the other post-apocalyptic media. Cool. So, I mean, check it out. It's really good. I think, like I say, it's the only, it's the only people playing an RPG podcast that I can stand to listen to still in the year of our Lord, 2022. So <laughs> it is what it is, but, uh, I guess we should start wrapping up. Uh, Are there any last thoughts, I guess, on the genre of post-apocalyptic stuff? Are there any things coming up that you're excited about that you know were are kind of in that genre? Or any avenues of things that you're like, I've been meaning to get to that, but I haven't yet. Maybe I should.
1: (laughs) So I'm going to say that I am going to consider the next Mass Effect game to be post-apocalyptic. And I am looking forward to that. Because I mean, I hope hope they do that. I mean... (sighs) Where else? I mean, it doesn't matter which ending you choose. It is an apocalyptic ending. So I I would say there's that. I honestly don't really know of that much. That's coming. Um, I, you know, especially the last little bit, things have just been busy enough that I haven't been plugged into a lot of that kind of stuff. Sure. But it's a genre that I think has a lot of potential And I think a lot of the things, not everything, but a lot of the entries in this sort of genre of entertainment just don't reach the potential that they could. And that's what Mm -hmm. I would love to see, is I would love to see people taking the idea of post-apocalyptic entertainment, of a post-apocalyptic world, and pushing it a little bit more. You know, it, it just feels like, In many ways, and again, not always, but in many ways, it has been a a kind of a stagnant, uh, a a stagnant thing for a while. And I would like to see people stretching it a little bit, pushing it a little bit and uh, making us think about uh, the idea of post-apocalyptic media in a different way than we have been. Because it it all, again, so much of it tends to feel
0: samey to me. Yeah. I am with you. Uh, I do, I don't know. I I too hope to see new things. I hope to see some growth there and doing something different. Um, And I just don't know that we're going to get it, but I hope for it.
1: Yeah, that's all we can do,
0: I guess. Because I I can't, I have neither the ability nor the money to make my own media. So (laughs) I got to hope that what comes out is good. And if it's there not, you know. I can always go back and watch escape from New York. Cause you know what movie rules escape from New York. You know who makes good movies? John Carpenter. Did you know that John Carpenter makes a good movie? <laughs> you know, he's got some experience making movies. I know you're not a big, uh, horror fan. So you probably haven't seen Halloween or the thing, but oh, the no, thing no. Is do
1: you th- want to know why I hate horror so much? Is it because of the thing? Because our dear thoughtful father thought that it would be appropriate for me at the age of eight years old to watch the thing with him while our mother was working nights at the hospital
0: well um, I have been forever was...
1: scarred by watching the thing at a young girl.
0: that's fair that's very fair <laughs> so uh, yeah I've
1: seen the thing <laughs> it still MVP creeps rules. me out to this day
0: <laughs> it's one of the I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made Uh, it's pinnacle pinnacle of of, uh horror and science fiction cinema uh it rolls uh but i also understand where if you saw it as a young age and see i think that i like horror because i was a little bit older i saw the first evil dead movie at 14 or 13 13 14 it was a halloween it was right after i was not allowed to go trick-or-treating anymore so i got together with my friends we went to blockbuster to rent Mm -hmm. a movie and we were all underage, so it's not like we could rent rated R movies, but do you know what you could rent at Blockbuster if you were not seventeen? Unrated movies. Aha. Uh-huh. So we rented Evil Dead, which is not rated, because when they tried to rate it, it got an X, and so they said, never mind, we'll release it without rating. <laughs> Really good, really well thought out policy there, blockbuster. Real good job giving 13-year-olds access to that extremely gory, extremely violent, filled with nudity movie, Evil Dead. Uh, but I was old enough that I think it made a positive impression on me and I was like, man, horror movies are pretty fun, huh?
1: <laughs> there you go. So I really
0: like the thing. But Escape from New York, it's also really good. Post-apocalyptic, Snake Pliskin is in it how can you not win with a main character whose name is snake Plissken played by Kurt Russell with an eye patch. It is
1: true. It is true.
0: Anyway, we should wrap things up. Uh, we both got to go to bed. Um, but it was fun to talk about this stuff with you and to think a little bit about post-apocalyptic media. And we will be back in two weeks with our next great adventure in the summer, the waning summer of X with X-Men origins Wolverine. Which, which makes I me think.
1: think we're not going to have to think nearly as hard about that topic as we may have had to think about this one.
0: Oh, I think so too. I think that we'll both come in and be like, oh, "This movie is so dumb." <laughs> I think that that's how we're going to come in. Uh, I think it'll come in real hot. And I think we'll talk about how dumb a movie it is. Uh, and it should be fun. I agree. But we'll be back in two weeks with that. Uh, so yeah, I let's wrap it up. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you have any questions, you can shoot us an email at the, the email that Peter can say here
1: feedback at the middle of
0: I did get some feedback from a friend about X three, but I'll save it for our next X-Men episode. We were Ooh. texting about it and he was like, here's my thoughts on your episode and on X three as a movie. And he made some really good points that I think are worth bringing up. So we'll I talk look about forward that. To hearing about that. Well. Perfect. And, uh, yeah, leave a review, give us five stars, Give us a kiss on the cheek. Whatever you want to do. Maybe yep. even a kiss on the forehead. That's, that, some, somehow that feels more intimate than a kiss on the cheek. I don't know why.
1: I don't either, but I think you're right. I think you're right. So
0: Anyway, thank you all for listening. Have a great evening yeah. or day Thanks, or whenever everybody. you're listening. <laughs> Bye.
1: Bye.